Please open your Bibles to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. You know, I told myself coming in this morning, I'm not going to sing very loud. I want to save my strength. But when you sing these songs like we're singing, hallelujah to our great God and of his goodness, we sing glory be to our great God, and we sing of how Jesus shall reign. How, how can you not sing out? Or how can you not? So let us, let us praise this great God that we've been singing about and singing to, and let us ask him to reveal his word to us this morning. Father, our hearts would cry out, hallelujah. Glory be to you, our great God. Father, we thank you that you are great in all of your ways. Father, we thank you that you're great in your creation, that you recognize you as your creator, that you're great in your redemption of us, that though, Lord, that we are weak and frail, that we have sinned and are dead in our trespasses and sin, you redeemed us and gave us life. Lord, so we praise you for your greatness. We praise you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know you as you are, that, that we have your word, and that it's not dependent on our own mere guesses or speculations of what you might be like, but that we can look to your word that you revealed yourself to us. And thank you that every piece of your word, your Bible, your scripture is profitable for us, that we may be equipped for every good work. So Lord, we pray that though we are weak and frail, though I am weak and frail this morning, God, that you would reveal yourself. We thank you that we don't have to ask you to be here this morning, that you said that you would never leave us nor forsake us, but we'd ask you that you'd open our eyes that we may see you, that we may see you from your word, that you would teach us your ways, that we would know you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you go to visit the Smithsonian National Museum, You'll find in the Albert H. Small Documents Gallery a book referred to as the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was one of the founding fathers and the third president of the United States of America. And this Jefferson was disturbed by much of what he found in the Bible. And so he took action. He took a razor and he cut out the parts of the Bible he found problematic. In his own words, in a letter he wrote to John Adams, this is what Jefferson said. He said, I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter, which is evidently his, and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. Miracles? Cut. Anything about Jesus' divinity or Jesus being God? No way. Cut it out. Resurrection of Jesus? Cut. He cut these out with a razor and glued the remaining pieces together as what he considered his own personal Bible. Can you imagine the arrogance, the brashness to literally take a razor to the Bible, to the part that you don't feel personally should be included? However, instead of turning Jefferson into some sort of straw man caricature of liberal theology, we should be careful. We ask the question, do we sometimes do the same thing ourselves today? Maybe it's not as explicit as Jefferson's actions. Maybe we don't do it with this antagonistic attitude towards the Bible. Maybe we do it just because we ignorantly end up doing that, but with the same results. Are there parts of the Bible that we don't talk about? Are there parts of the Bible we don't preach on? Are there parts of the Bible that you just don't find in any of your devotionals you read? Are there parts of the Bible we don't meditate on that we implicitly cut out? For many Christians... One of the most often ignored texts are what are classified as the imprecatory psalms. 
Imprecatory means to call down curses or judgment. These psalms express David's prayers for justice and judgment on the wicked and the oppressors of God's people. Over 30 psalms contain different parts of these prayers, these imprecatory prayers. Some of the psalms are entirely of this nature, including the psalm we're studying this morning, Psalm 35. I, when, I, when Pastor Bob and Pastor Steve and I were looking at the psalms we wanted to cover this summer in our selection, I, I said I wanted to make sure we covered certain psalms. We want, don't want to just skip over to our favorite psalms, but get all the types of psalms that are included, including these often skipped or ignored psalms by most Christians. Look through your devotional books. You just don't tend to find these psalms in, 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 in those sort of books. And I understand why. As Christians, we're taught to love our enemies. So what do we do with a psalm that says, let destruction come upon him? How does that work? There are some that would go so far as to say that these psalms are not part of God's word. They would say that these psalms are not inspired by God, that these are, these are not from God. These are just from David or from man's own sinful desire from vengeance. You have to figure out what part is God and what part is not God. One well-known commentator wrote, quote, these psalms are not the oracles of God, unquote. Very famous commentator, very famous uh, commentary. C.S. Lewis even wrote that the prayers in these psalms are, quote, indeed devilish, unquote. And that if you were to approve of what was written in the Bible there, he says you're wicked. But that's not how the New Testament looks at these psalms. The New Testament doesn't treat these psalms as devilish. The New Testament treats these psalms as part of God's word. Jesus quotes these psalms and uses actually similar language to these psalms in his woes against the Pharisees. Beyond that, Peter in Acts and Paul in Romans cites these specific psalms as the word of God. And beyond of how it treated it as God's word, these psalms are not just divinely inspired. They are important for us. How are they important for us? because they're part of Scripture. And Scripture, all of Scripture, is profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How does this, these psalms equip us? Because these psalms teach us how we are to live in a broken world. See, we looked at some of the lament psalms, and there is lament in this world from suffering, from suffering from natural disasters and sickness and tragedy. But there's another type of suffering that we encounter in this world, and that's the suffering that we lament on that comes from injustice. We live in a fallen world where friends are betrayed. We live in a fallen world where employees are exploited. We live in a fallen world where spouses are abused. We live in a fallen world where people are shot while shopping because of the color of their skin. We live in a fallen world where Christians are sued and taken to court because of biblical conviction. What do you do with that? What do we do with that? That's why we can't ignore psalms like Psalm 35. They are a gift from God for us to try to process how do we think about injustice and wickedness in this world? How should our hearts wrestle with lament over the brokenness of this world in prayer to God? So let's look at the psalmist's example. Let's look at Psalm 35 and look at how David sets this example for us when he is faced with wickedness and injustice in this world. How are we to pray? 
He shows us first that we're to pray not about our own personal vindictiveness, but about divine vindication. Look at the prescript first of all there. It says, of David. That's important. We don't want to skip over that. Because David wrote almost all of the imprecatory psalms. And that's important because we know who David is. We know what he was like. We know about his life. We know from other psalms, David didn't think that he's righteous and everyone else is a sinner. We know that David knew that he was a sinner, that he himself needed forgiveness. We know that David in the example of his life is not one who went about exacting vengeance on his enemies, but he showed mercy to people like he did to Paul. But we know that David as king also was a man who must and had to take issues of justice seriously. So look at verses 1 through 3 of David. Contend, O Yahweh. That capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the, the divine name of God, Yahweh. Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. You notice the kind of language he's using here? He starts with that contend language, which actually comes right out of the courtroom. It's a legal image of an attorney defending his clients. You see, sometimes people are going to accuse you falsely. Sometimes they're going to spread hurtful lies about you. Sometimes they're going to tarnish your reputation. And so what do you do? Well, what does David do? He looks to God to defend his actions. He looks to God to defend his reputation. And then he switches from the courtroom to a different image, from the courtroom to the battlefield. You see that, those images? Sometimes it's more than our reputation that's at stake. It's our, it seems like our very lives are on the line. We need God as a divine warrior to be our bodyguard. So he focuses on the defensive armor God provides, a shield and buckler. Some translations would translate it as God providing a large shield and a small shield. Whatever's needed for the circumstance, God will provide the defense. And even that image of spear and javelin gives that picture of holding back or stopping those pursuing David. Now, here's the point. As you think about all these images, let's think about this. What is David doing here? What is he doing? He's being attacked. He's being pursued. He's being slandered. He's being threatened. And what is David's response? Well, by figuring out what David's doing, let's ask a different question. Let's ask, what would our response be, right? When we are attacked, when we are threatened, when, when we are persecuted, what's our response? How do I get them back? How do I defend myself? How, how do I get even for myself, right? That tends to be our type of thinking. Yeah, yeah, I see a couple heads nodding. Some of them are not nodding, but that's okay. We'll get there. How is what David's doing very different from what we tend to do? He's not focusing on how he can get it, make it right. He's taking it to God in prayer. You guys see the difference there? Instead of saying, how do I fix this situation? How do I get vengeance? He's saying, he's looking to the I am, to Yahweh, to the God of his salvation to defend him. Instead of personal vengeance, instead of personal vindictiveness, he turns to God. When faced with injustice and wickedness in this broken world, David shows us that we should pray, not about our personal vindictiveness, but for God to bring divine vindication. You see, David recognizes here that there is real injustice. There is real wickedness in this world, right? We can agree with him in that, right? You know what's amazing? Is that some of the people that would criticize David in this psalm 
are the same people then that would go and have to take vengeance into their own hands to make things right. Right? If you're not looking to God to make things right, then you often are either ignoring justice or you think it's your job to make things right. So you get angry at people. You try to get back at people. You give people the silent treatment. You cut them out of your lives. You, you, you insult them on, on social media. And, and so what you're doing is you're only adding your own injustice and wickedness to what's already happening. But not David and not Christians who trust in the sovereign and just God of the universe. We can rightly acknowledge that there is injustice and wickedness. And at the same time, we can acknowledge that there is one who can rightly deal with that injustice. And that's not me. And that's not David. And that's not you. That's the judge of all the earth who will do what is right. So we can bring that situation to God. And we see that idea in the New Testament as well. In fact, keep your finger there if you'd like, and, or you could just listen. But if you'd like, flip over to Romans 12, which Dave so, so helpfully read for us this morning. <laughs> if you turn over to Romans 12, we see the same idea, these same sort of themes, right? That there is, there is some sort of injustice that's happening. There's some sort of injury that's happened. And how does Paul instruct us to deal with that in love? Let me read just part of what Dave read, uh, where it says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but get, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then it continues to go on more and more. These verses are so helpful for us. Because so, what do you do when you're being sinned against? What do you do when, when you're being sinned against by your, pa- by your parents? You're being sinned against by your adult children. What are you doing when you are the, the boss being s- exploited by your employees or you're the employees being exploited by your boss? What are you doing when you're being, what do you do when you're being attacked by your neighbors, your coworkers? What do you do when you face wickedness and injustice in this broken world? And, and, and Paul says, here's how you respond in love. I can't think of how many times over the years I've just turned to this passage as I've walked through different people and using an il- illustration that commonly is used by Paul Tripp. And I say, Look, listen, this, this, this passage describes two different areas of responsibility. I'll draw a huge large circle and a small circle inside it, like an egg, like the yolk, and then the, what's the white part called? Well, the white part and the yolk, right? And I'll look at the yoke and I'll say, listen, if you look at the inner part, that's the circle of responsibility. There are certain things in this passage that you're called to do. You're not just called to say, yep, there's bad things and I'm just going to ignore them. You know, a spoonful of sugar makes it all better. No, it, you, there's real injustice and you're called to act. But it's your job, your responsibility is not to bring about justice. It's not to get even. Your responsibility is to respond in love. Your responsibility is to act honorably in the, in, in the sight of all. Your responsibility is to, as far as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. You see, that's your, that's your responsibility. There are th- certain things you're called to do, not just throw your hands up in every relationship. There's certain things to try to be at peace with all men. But what about those other things that are going on? What about the injustice and the wickedness and the sin? Do we just ignore those? No. We care about those, that outer circle, the egg white, I would call the, the, the circle of concern. Those concern you, right? You're affected by those, but you are not responsible for dealing with that. You're responsible for your reactions in love and seeking peace 
and you leave the wickedness, you leave the injustice, you leave the sin, as you bring that to prayer in God, where God says, vengeance is mine. I will take care of that. I will repay, says the Lord. See, the same thing David is doing is the same thing Paul is doing in Romans 12. We can bless our enemies. We can not have to go exact personal vengeance because we trust in God, that area of concern. He is the supreme judge. He is the divine warrior. He is the one that's going to bring vindication and justice. That's the example David sets for us. But then he goes on. Turn back to Psalm 35. Secondly, David shows us that when we're faced with the injustice and wickedness of this broken world, he teaches us to pray, but to pray not about our bitter thoughts, not our personal bitterness, but to pray for the fulfillment of divine promises. Look at verses 4 through 8 with me. Verses 4 through 8, David says, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of Yahweh driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let, that, let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Man, it seems a bit harsh, right? Those prayer requests, shame and dishonor, like chaff driven away, let destruction come. I mean, wow. But, but do you notice that the framework of this section as we read that? That the verses four through six, you have these let them be's. Do you see that, four through six? And then back in verse eight, you pick up another one of those let them be's. But in verse seven, there's a shift. It's like a sandwich, right? Bread, meat, bread. The bread's there, it's good, but you want to focus on the meat, right? What's going on there in the sandwich? That, that middle part in verse seven, he switches from let them be to what word? How does he start? For. You guys see that word there? For. David is giving a reason why he's asking these things. For, or for this reason, or because. Why? What reason? Because they are doing these things to him how? They're doing these things to him without cause. Two times he emphasizes this idea. He's saying there's real injustice. There's real evil taking place. It's completely unprovoked. These are acts of wickedness. And in light of this injustice, he says, God, I'm asking you to do what you have promised to do. He, listen, we're going to look at these verses. He's not going to come up and just pray with any bitter images. I pray that their foot gets stuck in a hole and they can't get out. Right? It's not whatever bitter images come to his mind. He starts praying in biblical terms and asking for the way that God would deal with the wicked, the, the way that God promised God will do. Look at, the, look at these verses. Look in verse 4. Let them be put to shame and dishonor. That's a direct quote reference right out of Psalm 31. That's a promise that when God's light and truth is revealed, wicked will be, wickedness will be put to shame. So it says, God, you promised that would happen when your light and truth come. I, I pray that that would happen. In verse 5, he says, let them be like chaff before the wind. Does that sound familiar? We, we saw that a couple months ago out of Psalm 1, verse 4. It says, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. God, you promised that this would happen to the wicked. We, he's praying that what God said would happen, would happen. In verses 5 through 6, he talks about the angel of Yahweh. That's a reference to God's promise in, in Exodus 23 that the angel would, would guard Israel's way. But even more, it's a, it's, a, it's a quote from Psalm 34, 7, where it says that the angel of Yahweh encamps and protects those who fear God. 
He's saying, God, you promise that the, your angel protects those who fear you. I pray that, that, that you would answer that promise. In verse 8, let the net that he hid ensnare him. That's a direct reference to the promise in Psalm 9.15 that the pit and net of the nations would be their own undoing. You see, David here is not just saying, whatever I saw on some cartoon show that happened to the roadrunner, I pray that's going to happen to my enemies. That's not what he's praying. It's not whatever bitter thought comes out of his heart or life. He's saying, God, you have promised that you would deal with wickedness. You have promised certain things. God, would you do what you promised? They are unrepentant. They continue in their wickedness. It's completely unprovoked. Would you deal with, justly with wickedness like you promised? And then look at verses 9 and 10. David says, Then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Yahweh, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Here David is looking forward to a day when God has fulfilled his promises, when God has brought about justice and salvation. He says, Then on that day there will be rejoicing and exaltation. And when he's thinking about this day, David just bursts out saying, Oh, Yahweh, oh, Lord, who is like you? That's a rhetorical question, right? He's obviously, the answer is no one. No one is like the Lord. If we were going to try to find absolute justice anywhere else, we would be disappointed. In David's day, when he, David considered the gods of other nations, there was no justice there. The gods of other nations were inconsistent and fickle. They could be tricked. They could be misinformed. They could be emotionally manipulated. They were finite in their power, finite in their moral character, finite in their ability to bring justice. You know, we live in a modern society, a secular society that now has also thrown off the idea of any justice being found in gods. But you know what? Our society can't do any better for justice because our justice system today can be tricked, can be misinformed, can be emotionally manipulated. Our justice society, justice system today is fickle in its power, fickle in its moral character, and fickle in its uh, ability to bring absolute justice. This is an example I've talked before about the recent trial of Reinhold Hanning, who was an SS guard in the Nazi camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau from January 1943 to mid-1944. In his recent trial, survivors testified about the horrifying experience about in his brief time there, how he was an accessory to over 170,000 deaths as his company monitored the selection process where the guards would separate those arriving to Auschwitz either to go to the labor camps or to be gassed. Hanning was finally tried and convicted for his participation in June 2016, over 70 years after his crimes. He was 94, and he died before spending a single day in jail, responsible for 170,000 deaths. Everyone would agree justice is not served. It took 70 years where he got to basically live his life out without one day in prison for his involvement because we are limited in our finiteness to bring about final justice. But David would say, O oh Lord, O oh Yahweh, who is like you, 
the God who created the universe has revealed himself in his scriptures to be perfect in his character of righteousness and holiness and justice. He is the judge of all the earth who will do what's right. He cannot be tricked. He is not misinformed. He cannot be emotionally manipulated. He is perfect in his power, perfect in his moral ability, and perfect in his ability to bring justice. Now in this age of grace, in his mercy, he is giving an opportunity for wicked people, including me and you, to come and repent and trust in the forgiveness he offers in the work of his son. But there's coming a day when Jesus is returning and God will we'll set all things right. And there will be complete justice for all wickedness and sin. God will do what he promised to do with injustice. By the way, there are some people who have said and written things like, Jesus never taught us to pray like Psalm 35. And I would say, have you heard the Lord's Prayer? Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's next? Thy kingdom come. What does it mean when Jesus' kingdom comes? When we pray that, when we pray, thy kingdom come, and when he finally, it finally comes in full as he promised, it will mean divine judgment on all other kingdoms. It will mean divine judgment on every person who's not part of that kingdom. My friends, when we pray, thy kingdom come, praying what God asked us to pray, praying what he promised would happen. It's the exact same type of prayer that David is praying in Psalm 35. See, when faced with injustice and, 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 and wickedness in this world, we don't pray just our own bitter thoughts. We pray that God would fulfill his divine promises. The New Testament version of Psalm 35 is thy kingdom come. But then David goes on even more to give us more of an example. He says, when we pray in light of injustice and wickedness, we don't pray again about these personal, this personal retribution, but we would pray for divinely inspired repentance. Look at verses 11 through 16 with me. David says, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for a friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did, did not know tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. Do you see the contrast in those verses? Verses 11, 12, David's giving more description of the malice they had towards him. But look in verse 13. Look there. You see the but? The in contrast to that behavior? What does David describe in verses 13 and 14? We get to see a view of David's own heart in this situation, about how he really felt about these enemies of his. And what does he describe about his own heart? Did he hate them? No, he genuinely cared for them. When they were sick, he mourned for them. He prayed for them. He cared for them like they, he was their, they were his own family. In fact, when we think about how we feel about family, we don't often use that word care. We use the word love, right? So he's talking about that he loves his enemies like he loves his family. We're, we're getting insight into David's heart. And we're seeing that, that David did just as Jesus would teach us to do. David did love his enemies. He prayed for them. He grieved for them. 
and his prayers for judgment came only after extended efforts to call them to repentance. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. Despite David's love, despite David's cares, despite, despite David's prayers, they just refused to repent, and they furthered their assaults and their wickedness. Do you see how important this insight is into David's heart? These prayers for justice were not about personal grievances. They're not about his personal retribution of, I'm going to hate those who hate me. That's not what David's doing. David prayed for his enemies. He showed care and love for his enemies. He grieved over the life of his enemies. He sought the repentance of his enemies. And that fits with what we know about David. That fits David's life. That fits his relationship with Saul. That fits with what we know about the rest of the Psalms. That the book of Psalms is filled with as many offerings of grace and mercy, as many offerings of a call to repentance, as it gives of these pictures of God's just judgment. In fact, that's the same picture that we see in the New Testament of love. Right? 1 Corinthians 13 personifies love, and part of that description is love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. See, this helps us to understand David's heart in his prayer for justice. He was asking for divine judgment only so long as they persisted in their sin and rebellion. He did as Jesus taught us to do. He loved his enemies. He prayed for his enemies. But if they continued to refuse to repent, then it was right to pray for God's justice. And the implication would be it's the same for us. When faced with wickedness in this broken world, we should pray. We should, we should not be praying for justice until we prayed for repentance. You see, we need to understand what David understands here. That the divide between the righteous and the wicked is not a divide of an us versus them. The divide of the righteous for the wicked is the divide of us versus God. You see, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad because we want to show you that we're not hiding anything of what the Bible says, that the Bible is, is the word of God and useful for us, important for us. This is how God speaks to us. And it's important that you see what David's describing is that there's not this divide between Christians and non-Christians, that we are the good guys and non-Christians are the bad guys. That that's not what the Bible teaches us. But David says that we're all the bad guys. There were all the wicked that are under the just judgment of God. We are all sinners who deserve judgment. David knows himself as a sinner. In fact, if, if you want to see that more, write down Psalm 51. I'd love you to, to read that some other time, where David sees that we are all those who commit acts of sin and wickedness. We all have shown malice to our fellow man. We all have acted for ourselves selfishly over others. We all have sometimes secretly rejoiced in others' downfall because we knew it would be good for us. We all are wicked on the inside. But our case gets even worse when we recognize that our wicked not is just against our fellow man, but also our wickedness is against the God of the universe who created us. That although he's our creator, we refuse to honor him and we refuse to worship him and we shamed the God of the universe by exchanging his glory for our lust saying, these are worthy of our worship, but he is not worthy. We committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. That's what the Bible calls sin. And God is a just God, must bring judgment for our sin. If, if any judge in Madera County were to just bypass 
in acts of injustice, we would ask for his removal from the bench. And, this, and so God must deal with what is unjust. And you, but you may say, but God is loving. That's true. God is loving. That's so important. But in God's love, God's love, he must be just as well. Because to, to, to love something means to be rightfully angry about that which wrongs what it, what, 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 uh, what, what it loves. If a father loves his child, he will be rightfully angry and wrathful at what wrongs that child. And in God's love for us, he must show righteous and just wrath against the sin that destroys us and the sin that dishonors the truth of his glory. I remember that early on in youth ministry at this church, I was talking with a young man, and after we're talking about the gospel and talking about the Lord, he just told me, I, I, I think the God of the Bible is evil. Well, that would make your ears perk up, right? Why do you think he's evil? God loves you. I, I think that God in his love is evil. Well, now, now my ears are really perked up. What do you mean? He says, because no good God, no loving God, would just overlook the evil people do. Find out that several years before, uh, a good friend of him was, his was murdered. And the idea that if someone just said a prayer to trust in Jesus and God just said, okay, we'll forget about that one, that can't be a good God. That can't be a loving God. Because that God could not have loved that friend like he loved that friend if God were just to do that. So I showed him from Scripture that God is a perfectly just God. God is a God who would perfectly bring justice. But here's the problem I showed him. That this justice is not just for that murderer. That justice is also deserved by him and by me and by all of us. But there was good news, what the Bible calls the gospel of good news for me, for you, and for him. Is that God loved you so much that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. He died in our place as our substitute to pay for that penalty so that God can both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That God can be just to show that Jesus paid that penalty. He takes sin that seriously. He takes injustice that seriously that he would lay the spiritual wrath that we deserve for our sin, for our injustice, for our wickedness on his son so that when he does forgive us, it's real forgiveness. He is the justifier of us. We are declared innocent because of what Jesus has done. He is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And he, he demonstrates that this is true by raising Jesus from the dead three days later so that he could offer this, this forgiveness, this justification of being right before God, of having your sins forgiven as a free gift to you. If you're here this morning and, and you have not received this free gift, it's a free gift by, because of what Jesus has done for you if you would turn and repent of your sin and place your trust in what Jesus has done for you for salvation as Savior and Lord. If you want to know more about that, we would love to tell you more how you can know this gift of having your sins forgiven, of being made, having the right relationship with God through the work of Jesus. Please don't leave without asking us. We'd love to tell you more. Ask anyone, uh, any member of our church. Ask the person who brought you. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary after service. I'd love to tell you more about this gift of grace. This is the grace that David knew he received. This is the grace that David wanted others to seek in their repentance. However, if they refused to repent, if they refused to accept that grace, if they refused and continued to walk in injustice, 
David then continued in this example of his prayer for justice. In this last part, he teaches us how to pray, not about personal vengeance, but then how to pray for divine justice. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I thank you and the great congregation and the mighty throng. I will praise you. David asked, how long, O Lord, will you look on? He's, David sought to do what God's called him to do. He sought to be responsible. He's sought to act righteously. He's repented of his sin. He's sought to love his enemies. He didn't take his own personal revenge. He trusted in God's justice. And despite all of that, the wicked people kept winning. The wicked people kept getting stronger. Notice he addresses his Lord not with the capital Yahweh letters, but just as Lord or Master. You're the Lord of all the earth. I'm your servant. I'm waiting on you. When are you going to act? How long are you just going to look on? How long are you just going to be a spectator? Don't you see what's going on here? Look at verses 19 through 21. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye and hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. David's saying, do you see what these wicked people are doing, Lord? They rejoice in their wrongdoing because they think they're getting away with it. It's not just against David, against all the quiet in the land. They're saying, aha, aha. It's like they're, you know, a second grader pointing their finger at you, right? Ha, teacher doesn't see. I got it. I'm winning. You're, you, I got you. David's saying, don't you see what they're doing? And then there's a word play on this word see. Look at verse 22. But you have seen, O Yahweh. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, O God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. But let them not, let them not say, we have swallowed him up. You see that word play on see? He says, you see too, don't you, God? You see what they're doing. You see what they're saying. And David prays that God would bring justice, that the wicked would not have the last word, that the wicked would not have the final victory. Look at the repeated use of those do not petitions. Verse 22, do not be silent. Do not be far from me. Verse 24, do not let them rejoice. Verse 25, do not let them say in their hearts, aha. Again, do not let them say we have swallowed them up. David's praying and asking God, don't let the wicked win. You've seen what they're saying. You've seen what they're doing. You've seen that they think they've won. God, when will you bring your promised justice? And here's back to our question. Should we pray like this? Should we pray and seek this kind of justice? Well, look how David concludes this psalm. Look at this contrast in verses 26 to 28. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David's making a contrast. What's the difference between the wicked and the righteous? The wicked praise themselves. The wicked rejoice when there's injustice. The righteous praise God. The righteous rejoice when God acts in justice. You see the difference there? The sharp contrast. 
Those who worship a just and righteous God, those who have experienced the, the justification of Jesus in their lives, will rejoice when God acts in justice. And Christians, part of the foundation of our faith is Romans 3.26, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. We see how seriously takes, God takes justice by looking how Jesus bore the justice we deserve on the cross to be justified. So therefore, as followers of Christ, we are those who pray for, who seek for, who delight in God's justice. We are those who are concerned about justice. I'm so encouraged by the words of theologian Carl F.H. Henry. He said this, Those who know that God deals with men justly and not arbitrarily, and who also have a share in the justification that reinforces his justice and the grace of Golgotha, stand today at the crossroads of a crisis in a modern civilization. If they find vision for our day, they can put the world on notice regarding God's claim in creation and redemption by calling men everywhere to behold anew the demand for justice and the need for justification. See, as Christians, we are those who delight in justice because we serve a just God. So we desire justice and we pray for justice and we rejoice in justice. So we are those who tell the world their need to be justified by the work in Jesus Christ. And we demand and we stand for justice even when they don't place their trust in Jesus Christ, when people don't repent in Jesus Christ, that we still stand for justice. We still pray for justice, which means that we stand for what, what God stands for in his justice out of our love for God. We stand against abortion and we stand against euthanasia because we affirm the dignity of every human life from the womb to the grave. We stand for justice. We stand against racism, and we stand against the oppression of others based on the color of the, their skin or their country of origin because we affirm the dignity of every human life from the womb to the grave. We stand for justice. We stand against unjust courts and abuses of power and political corruption, whether it, it's from the party we voted for or the party we voted against because we stand for justice. We desire justice and we pray for justice and we rejoice when there is true justice because God has proved that he is a just God at the cross. So yes, many ways we do follow in David's example. We pray for and seek the justice of God. When we live in this injustice, unjust and wicked world, this broken world, we pray for justice. Not personally, out of some personal vengeance, but we yearn for divine justice. Oh, what the followers of Christ miss out on when they cut Psalm 35 out of their Bibles. Thomas Jefferson might have cut these parts out intentionally because of his hostility towards Jesus. Other Christians may have cut these Psalms out unintentionally with innocent motives, but the result's similar. You cut anything out of the Bible and you miss God's good gifts of his revelation that we need for our lives. See, without Psalm 35, where do you find the answer for injustice and wickedness in a broken world. You see, without Psalm 35, there's really only two other options. Either you try to ignore that there is injustice, you try to turn a blind eye to those things, or you think it's your personal responsibility to get revenge. 
But it's not, that's not David. David's example shows that, that instead of those options, we pray. We pray not about our personal vindictiveness. We pray for divine vindication. We look to God for personal vindication, not our own personal vindication. Like David, we pray not with our own bitter images, but we pray based on divine promises. Not our bitter fantasies, but we pray the New Testament version of that, that psalm, thy kingdom come, O Lord. Like David, we pray not about personal retribution. We pray for divinely inspired repentance. We pray that they would recognize their sin and respond to the grace of Christ just like the grace that was offered to us. And if they don't repent, like David, we pray not for personal vengeance, but we do pray for divine justice. We look for and rejoice in justice because we serve the God who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This psalm is not an example of David's desire for vengeance. This psalm is not just part of an Old Testament dispensation that doesn't apply to us as New Testament believers. This psalm is for every follower of Christ who lives in a fallen world. Perhaps the best New Testament parallel to this psalm is found at the conclusion of the New Testament. Some of the very last words of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, where John also considers the final justice when Jesus returns. What is it like when his kingdom comes in full? When everything that is wrong will be made right and everything that is broken will be made new in the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And when he considers the same type of justice that David is considering, here's how, Dave, here's how John concludes Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Isn't that what Psalm 35 is? We seek these things and we know it will happen when Jesus returns. And so we would pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that. Lord, we are thankful for the good and perfect gifts that you've given us in our lives. But we recognize that this world is broken. It's fallen. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to be able to live as lights in this dark world in a way that's described by, by David in Psalm 35, by Paul in Romans 12. Lord, be able to, to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us. Lord, but to not ignore issues of injustice and wickedness, but Lord, to, lead, to bring them to you in prayer, to be able to really deal with what is broken in this world while our hearts would cry out, oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.